All right, John chapter 11. I left you hanging last week. Some of you may have looked ahead and cheated to see whether or not Lazarus actually was raised from the dead. So uh, I'll be giving that secret away before we're done. Um, I love the visuals in the book of John. I love the way that John brings the, the events that he's describing to life. Um, we, can, we can picture them. He gives us enough information um, that we can begin to draw some conclusions about the way things would have been. So, for example, we know that John, um, John is saying that Jesus, apparently with his disciples, had traveled this day um, from near the Jordan River, the day that we're talking about, the, from near the Jordan River. So it's got to be evening, afternoon, late afternoon, or evening. Even if they got an early start, it's a long walk. And so it's, you know, early evening, Probably. So Jesus, remember, Jesus had come to the outskirts of the town, and the, um, he had met Martha there, and then he and Martha, he, he had then headed towards the tomb. Uh, Martha had gone to get Mary. Mary and Martha had run back to meet Jesus. They went to go to the tomb. And, and that's where we are, that the, the many of the Jews, probably some of whom were from Jerusalem, many of them might have been the very ones trying to kill Jesus just um, a few days before, and in, in our timetable, it's been a few months since we've talked about it, but it's only been a few days since that happened. And, um, and so Jesus is now standing probably on a hillside because in Israel there is no flat land. It's all hillsides, especially in this part of Israel. So probably on a little bit of a hillside, there's a cave. The cave has been turned into a family tomb. The family tomb has, now has someone buried in it. Typically what would happen is someone would die they would, they would roll a stone out of the way of the tomb unless it was the first person in the tomb and then they would bury the person in there and close the stone up and then a year or so later they would go in and open it up and pull the bones of the person out and put them in a little box. Um, turns out once all there is is bones, we don't take up very much space and they would take those bones and put them either in the back of that same tomb or in another place nearby on a family crypt and they would stack those bone boxes up with a name on them and then the tomb would be open again for the next dead body. That's what you're dealing with. Jesus has, where we are in the story, Jesus has come here and said, roll the stone away. And Martha has said, well, but there's, I mean, he's been dead four days. There's going to be a bad smell. He is starting to decay. Even with the spices they wrapped bodies in, there's going to be some bad smell probably. And that's, that's not something they want to experience. They don't want to experience the smell of death especially the decay of their own brother. And so we really don't want to open that up, Jesus. Jesus says, did not tell you that if you would believe, that if you would trust me, you would get to see the glory of God expressed. So that's what he tells her. So that's, that's the situation we're in. This is clearly a showdown. You should imagine Jesus standing there with his hat a little kilter and his legs are a little wide and there's a grave in front of him. And a little tumbleweed rolls right and past with little clicking noises. This is a showdown. Death and Jesus are going to go toe to toe. And everyone is expecting death to win. There's going to be a bad smell, Jesus. That's how death works. The decay has set in. That's, that's where we are. And so Jesus tells her, that's where we are. Verse 41, Jesus tells people to take away the stone, and so verse 41, they took away the stone. I'm going to come back to that before we're done, but Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So again, you're picturing this correctly. You're picturing this hillside, evening, grave, 
Jesus, they, some men go up and they roll this big stone away, this big cylindrical lid on the tomb out of the way. And Jesus looks up and he speaks to the Father. And this is just a strange prayer. By any way of looking at it, this is weird. It almost has that feel of, if you've been in church long enough, you've heard the kind of, you've maybe been to the kind of church that they kind of pray the announcements at the end of the service. You know what I'm talking about? Lord, we're grateful that the women's Bible study will be meeting in the auxiliary room at six o'clock today, this afternoon. And like, like that, it feels like Jesus is praying to God, but his audience is only kind of God. It's also this crowd of people. And he says so. Lord, you, you, I'm so glad that you hear me. I, you always hear me. His, it's like he wants to clarify to everybody. I'm not, doubt, I'm not praying right now because I doubt anything. I'm not wondering whether God is going to hear me. I'm not doubting the, the, the work that God the Father can do. But he is intentionally, for the sake of this crowd of people, he wants them to know this isn't just Jesus flexing some magic words. He is depending on God the Father to perform a mighty miracle in their midst. Remember, Jesus is experiencing life as a man. Human beings don't raise people from the dead. Only God could do that, and so God has to work through this, this Jesus Christ, who, though fully God, is experiencing life as a man. So he says, God, at some point, God, Jesus has apparently prayed for God to raise Lazarus from the dead. At what point? We don't know. That's actually one of the fascinating things in looking at the commentaries. Commentaries are funny things sometimes. What they pick on to decide to disagree about and go into is, is really interesting, but this is one of them. He lifts up his eyes, which, by the way, is appropriate. I know, I know that in, as in Protestant churches, typically we bow our heads to pray. We're being humble, submissive, etc. That's good. But in this case, it's, by the way, it's allowed since it's Jesus did it. If you want to look up when we pray, you're allowed, as long as you're, as long as you're looking up, right? Not around other people. That's the... Uh, uh, you've all, if you have kids, you've all experienced that at dinner, right? When one kid tells on the other kid for having their eyes open during the prayer. <laughs> Such a great moment. Parents live for that kind of thing. Okay, so, but you have this really funny prayer. So Jesus is pointing to the Father. He's thanking God in advance, maybe, but here's one of the things that many of the commentaries pointed out. There's a really good chance that Lazarus has already been raised. See, we kind of naturally assume that when he tells Lazarus to come out, that that's when Lazarus is raised from the grave, but there's really no reason to think that in the context. It could easily be that Lazarus is already alive, and that that's why Jesus says, I'm glad you have heard me, meaning, as I was walking up here, I prayed this. Or maybe that four days before when Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death, maybe that essentially was because Jesus had already prayed, Father, if he dies, bring him back. Let this, let this sickness not end in death. In any case, this miracle becomes a sign, not of the power of Jesus directly, but, be, but as attention is pushed to the Father by the Son, not to glorify himself, but to glorify God the Father. So when he says these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. In the Greek, apparently, it is as simple as it can possibly be. Lazarus, here, Out. Or hither is the old, old version. Lazarus, hither, out. Come out. You, out. Now, again, so fascinating the details that John offers here. A loud voice. Why, why a loud voice? Is this for Lazarus' sake? Is this meant to imply that to God, death is not different than sleep? For him to call forth means that that's what's going to happen? Is it just need to be loud enough to wake him up? Is it for the crowd that they can hear? Is it an expression of his emotion? Remember how overwhelmed with emotion, with anger, 
rage, sadness, hurt, pain, all those feelings that Jesus was feeling. Again, it's been a week for us, but for him, this is five minutes before. Maybe. What exactly is going on here? Um, Paul said that one of, the, one of the commentaries he read says that that's important that Jesus shouts it out because in this era, people who, people who were sorcerers would mutter their magic words. They wouldn't want anybody else to hear the special words they're using to perform some kind of miracle. And so they're always kind of muttering and quietly, whatever. And instead, Jesus comes out there and just yells it, Lazarus, out, here. Because he's, he's, it's, the power is not in some magic word. The power is in who he's looking to, an almighty God. In other words, Jesus is going like, here's my special words. Anybody else want to try them? Go right ahead. You're welcome to give it a shot, right? I think there's also something to, I learned years ago this idea, um, and I think there's something to it, is the idea that, that Jesus is having to be extremely clear because he is standing in front of a grave. He's going toe-to-toe with death. And he has to be very, very clear that Lazarus only is to come forward, right? Think of this. This is Jesus Christ, through whom, by whom, and for whom all things are created. He is the resurrection and the life. He walks up to a grave and says, come out. We're, I mean, that's it. That's the resurrection. That's what the resurrection is, right? So he has to be very clear. Lazarus, and only Lazarus, come out. I think there's something to that. I like that picture also because it reminds us of who we're dealing with. There's someone who's got to be careful with how he expresses his authority. Even though he's experiencing life as a man, the authority still that he carries is that of the creator of the universe. So, so here he is in that moment. I think, it's, I think it's awesome. So the man who had died, verse 44, hear this? The man who had died came out. Now that's not something you hear every day. The man who had died came out. This, this, any, of you, any of you follow the, uh, the, the resurrection hoax that was going on in South Africa this week? So a few of you may have heard about that. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. Apparently, the, some church, the Alleluia Church, um, their pastor raised a man from the dead this week, and it, um, he forgot to check an important box in the whole raising of the dead thing, though. See, if you're going to raise the dead, here's what's important. The first thing you've got to have is someone who's actually dead. Um, turned out this was just a guy who wasn't dead, um, and, but, but did lay in a coffin for a couple of days in order to convince people he was dead. Um, the problem was he was like really very much so breathing when they opened up the coffin, and uh, before he had been raised from the dead, he was already breathing. Um, make sure, if you're going to resurrect somebody, you've got to check that one off, dead. Um, John wants us to be abundantly clear here. He was dead. This was a man who had died. Um, at what, some point, he was raised. John doesn't want you to think, like, maybe there's some other explanation for this. Maybe there's some rational explanation. There is a rational explanation. The rational explanation is that God has the power over life and death. That's not irrational. It's just miraculous. But the idea that there might be some non-miraculous option here. One of the greatest, uh, the greatest analogies that, uh, of, of what it means to follow Christ is then created in this moment. This beautiful picture, it's why we sing about it, the way that we do that we have life bestowed on someone who is dead. This must be part of what the Apostle Paul was thinking back on when he writes in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead, like Lazarus. What you brought to the table was dead. And what Jesus does is bestow life. That's the picture that's created here, not just of 
just this life, but eternal life is what's going to come and what he's going to be the picture that's created by this life bestowed. That's why we sing that we ran out of the grave. Technically, I assume none of us have actually been in the grave, as in dead on earth, but dead in our hearts, dead in our souls, dead in our, in our minds, dead from an eternal perspective. And then when Jesus called our names, we ran out of that grave at some point. That's, that's what salvation is. That's actually the gospel, the good news, is that there's life for all the dead people. And how embarrassing for death that he could not, death could not hold on to Lazarus. The minute Jesus speaks, his authority declares something different. He comes out, it says, his hands and feet are bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, a lot of said about commentaries earlier. Commentaries, if you don't know, are just over the last 2,000 years, people have written their thoughts and understandings and, and the research they've done over these passages. And let me just tell you, this whole unbind him thing, it makes up a lot of pages of commentaries. I don't know why this is the thing that has all their attention, but there are hundreds and hundreds of pages of people trying to explain what's going on here. Of course, we don't know. It's all supposition, which that always makes it fun. All it is is, so by bound, there's a linen sheet of some kind that, that Lazarus has been wrapped in that's going to have spices pressed against his body. It's meant to minimize the effect of the smell that, that the sisters were worried about. That's the idea. And so Jewish bodies were wrapped in these spices. We'll see that when Jesus dies. Um, is are wrapped in these spices. <clears throat> um, and so, and then put in the, grave, in the grave there. Now, somehow this was wrapped to his body. And, and there's different theories on what it would have looked like in the year, you know, whatever year this is, the year 30-something A.D., now, most likely, you're just talking about a few bands wrapped around his body, holding these things, holding a sheet against his body, and it would not have been hard for Lazarus to walk out of the grave or run out of the grave. Um, but we really don't know. He could have been bound head to foot like, a, like a, a mummy, like an Egyptian mummy is actually one of the real possibilities, is that his legs are bound, his arm, he still could walk, but it would have been weird. He would have looked like the Boris Koloff mummy from the 1950s coming out of the grave. I, I want to comment on the fact that it's okay if this creates a little bit of an absurd picture. Um, one, of the, one of the things Paul read at some point was that Lazarus flew out of the grave, literally like horizontally flying, like <laughs> through space because Jesus called him out and he's bound or not, he's coming out. Like that's a, oh sure, why not? I mean, if you're going to have fun with it, right? We don't know. Um, I was raised on the idea that he hopped out, that he would have been bound like this and that he came out of the grave like this. Um, again, it creates kind of a weird, irreverent, absurd picture, but that's okay. This is real life. I mean, this is going to be a story one way or the other. Years down the road after Jesus has ascended into heaven and they've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you've got to know that they still sat around eating uh, fish by the Sea of Galilee, laughing about the day that Lazarus came bouncing out of the grave, if that's what happened. And they're real people and they really experience this. It's a big deal what's going on. It doesn't make any difference to the story which is what shocks me that there's so many hundreds of pages of commentary on it, but it's still fascinating. And notice Jesus' response. Now, how many sermons have you heard over the years, if you've been in church, over the phrase, unbind him? Like, this is something that's significant. A dead body can't unbind itself. Even if it's been resurrected, it's still bound up in certain things. There's a lot of sermons that are built on this, and obviously so. I think it calls for that. We're not going to spend a lot of time here ourselves, but... The idea being, here's what struck me about this, is that here you have Jesus raising someone from the dead. You do not have Jesus rolling the stone away from the grave. And you do not have Jesus unbinding the person who's just been raised. 
I love the fact that for Jesus' people, there's a role for us to play even in the midst of a miracle that we could never pull off on our own. We can't raise someone from the dead. Jesus can. But in the midst of that, instead of magically making the stone bounce up into the air, or instead of magically making Lazarus' grave clothes just vanish into in a puff of smoke, he says, you guys roll away the stone. You guys unbind him and set him free. This is a fascinating picture that we have a role to play, even in the middle that his people have a role to play. I love that. He doesn't need our help, but he lets us be involved in what he's doing. We get to be hands-on. There are men Maybe, and women who got to say, hey, you remember when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Yeah, I got to be one of the ones who rolled away the stone. I got to be one of the ones who helped unbind the, and you can imagine that would have been a hesitancy. Here comes Lazarus, again, as in, my, in my memory from childhood, bouncing out of the grave, standing out there, and everyone going, just standing there. And finally, Jesus going, will someone go unbind him? And just stand, like somebody go help the boy out. He can't, no, who would have wanted to rush over there, right? How freaky that is. Even the sisters would have been like, uh, can we touch him? Is that okay? Is that, like, this is, this is a weird situation. They're feeling helpless and stunned. But I, I love, another thing to picture this is, notice, the glory has been brought to God. Lazarus has been raised. The story is now going to transition away from the graveside. Just like that. Bam. Lazarus was raised. He comes out. Jesus says, unbind him. Next, let me tell you why I think this is the case. There's a couple of things. One, this isn't about the glorification of Jesus Christ. It's identifying who he is. It's showing his authority and power, but the glory is going to God, and that's been accomplished in the story already. Jesus pointed to God the Father. He said, look to him. He's going to accomplish this mighty thing because he listens to me and he sent me. And Jesus points the glory as the, as the triune God always seems to do. The Son points attention at the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit at the Father and the Son, the Father at the Spirit and the Son. Like this is the, that, that was good, wasn't it? I was, I was, John was like, he's going to mess that up. He's going to, no, I got them all. Um, uh, so that, I love that I looked over at John. He's like, ah, okay. Um, that's hard. That's not easy to do, people. That was, okay. Um, so, so notice that that's what's going on. This, this attention has been drawn. That's the case. And then now John wants to point out the fact that this was a sign and what matters with a sign is the response of the people listening, especially the unbelievers. It's a sign. Its purpose is to convince. It is to persuade. It is to convert. That's why it exists. We've talked about how this word faith, which is a verb in the Greek, to faith something means to be persuaded. And so John's going to emphasize now, listen, the glory has been brought to God the Father. Through Jesus Christ, God the Father has raised Lazarus from the grave. Now, how do the non-believers respond? What do they do? And, and, and so the first thing, Jesus instructs this, he instructs this, I'm assuming, of the family and of his men. I mean, his, his 12 are there. Matthew, go and bind him, right? Philip, go roll away the stone. The people have something to do here. And of course, when people even raise from the dead, when Jesus bestows life on us, we still bring our junk with us out of the grave. We bring the, ga- the grave clothes with us. Of course, that's a preaching moment. That's, a, that's such a sermon waiting to happen. Whatever it is in your life that binds you up, that reminds you of death, the character flaws, the addictions, the, the issues that we deal with, all that type of stuff, understanding, that's part of why we're all in this together is to help each other be unbound from the grave clothes. That is part of this and is clearly intentionally there to remind us of this. So we shouldn't be so frustrated or discouraged when we continue to find a new grave clothes that we need to be unwrapped from. That's part of the process. All right. 
Jesus does not take a big bow at the end of this. We want to see how people respond. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. They're convinced. I mean, it'd be hard not to be. He was dead. Lazarus was dead, and now he's alive. Even these Jews who have been trying to kill him, maybe, some of them would go, whoa, that's not normal. There's something special going on here. They're finally getting it. These are the ones who had chased Mary when she bolted from the house. They came with her in grief, but they get to be the witness of a great miracle. Like the man born blind, though, some of them are more interested in other things. We don't know what motivates. We don't know what motivates these Jews. Some of these Jews do a couple of different things. Here's what some of them do, though. One is, in Acts chapter 2, you can imagine, in Acts chapter 2, when you're going to see thousands and thousands of converts, part of why that's going to be the case is because this groundwork has been laid. People know about Lazarus. They know about the man born blind. All of that's in place. Later, when these disciples come back and they have supernatural ability to communicate the gospel and they say, hey, this Jesus, turns out, he came back from the grave. He's the real deal. He's the real Messiah. He's the Son of God. And people say, yep, see, I was there when he healed the blind man. And somebody else saying, yeah, I was there when he raised Lazarus. We need to follow this. If he's not really dead, that's totally plausible. So we need to follow this teaching. That's going to happen. But notice what happens immediately, and we don't know their mindset. Verse 46, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, my immediate instinct is to hate these guys, um, is that they're there to tattle, right? They're there because, hey, guys, remember when, uh, remember when we were worried about everybody following Jesus when he healed that guy born blind? Yeah, we have bigger troubles. Now he, now he raised a dead man. Now we have a problem. Now everybody really is going to follow him. That's how I interpreted this. That's how I saw it. But there's kind of an even split on their motivation, though, when you read these commentaries. Some people say, no, no, this, maybe this was more like the wise men going to Herod. Hey, 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 guess what? The new king has been born. They're all excited. Maybe they went back to the Pharisees because these were doubters. They were alongside the Pharisees. Yeah, we need to get rid of this guy. Then they see him raise someone from the grave, and they come running back going like, oh, my gosh, guys, guys, we were totally wrong. He's the real deal. He's the real Messiah. He just raised a man from the dead two miles away in Bethany. Everyone's talking about it. Regardless of what these men, their motivation was, the response of the, of the Pharisees, the response of the high priest, the response of what's called the Sanhedrin, the council that the high priest calls, is absolutely heartbreaking. It is, it is in my mind, it feels, it feels a little crushing to me. It's, it's sad for me to see this. Talk about what's going on here. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? Now, what a lame question. What do you mean, what are you to do? Okay, a man came proclaiming to be the Messiah. He fulfills all the prophecies about the Messiah. He's calling himself the son of man, which is a reference to the prophecy of Daniel about an almighty Messiah, a divine Lord Messiah. You know these passages. So he's come, he fed a whole bunch of people, you heard about that one, with nothing. In your very midst, he healed a man born blind. That's not supposed to be possible. Now you're hearing that he raised a man from the dead, certainly not possible. 
and you're trying to figure out what to do? Well, what's your job? You're the Pharisees. You're the Sanhedrin. You're the one who's supposed to be watching out for the Messiah and then leading the people of Israel to follow him. So what should you do? I don't know. What if you followed the Messiah? What if the reason you came into existence under Moses' brother, the priesthood, what if the whole reason you existed to proclaim the law, to look ahead at what God was revealing about what he was going to bring to the world, the entire reason you exist and have done so for 2,000 years was for this moment, and what are you asking? Hey, what should we do? What? They miss it entirely. This is just, I'll tell you, as a, as a leader, as a religious leader, this kind of thing is terrifying. If they missed it, if they missed what God's leadership was under these conditions, that's scary. How easy is it to miss it? I mean, these guys shouldn't have missed this. What are we to do? Listen to this. They don't deny the signs. This man performs many signs. Apparently, they believe he raised a man from the dead. They even believe that. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Right? Yes. That's why you exist, Sanhedrin. Hey, high priest, you exist in the hopes that everyone would believe in the one the Father has sent. That's your, that's why you, that's your whole purpose in life. Yes, that's it. Everyone believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice the order of that. That reveals a little bit about their heart, doesn't it? I mean, and our nation too. But more importantly, our place, meaning the Sanhedrin, us as individuals. Right now, we run the show. Understand, this is around AD 30. By AD 40, they're all dead. The temple is torn to the ground stone by stone. They're trying to protect something that in 40 years is going to be gone. Exactly what they want to avoid, they're going to trigger themselves. It's heartbreaking. We get to know that. Hindsight. They don't know that. Everyone believe in him. The Romans will come. And by the way, that's, that's not crazy thinking pragmatically. So from the time of Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother Aaron, the high priest had been the one who every year goes into the, t to the temple or the tabernacle as it was in that time, the tent. And they go into this one room and they, one day a year, we talked about this when we went through the different feasts and festivals. That's who the high priest is. Very special garments, very special role, and typically it passed down from father to son along the line of Aaron. So it's, it's a Levitical thing that you would have the, Le, the Levite tr tribe. Well, soon after Jesus died and the Romans took over, um, at that point, really, the Romans had been running the show themselves. Before that, the whole concept of you had to be a Levite to be a priest and a line of Aaron to be a priest, for a couple hundred years, that had gone out of fashion among the Jews and was no longer practiced really. Then you have the Romans coming in and by this time, by AD 30, what you have is the Roman leadership, they would nominate someone to be the new high priest. Um, the Roman governors or the Roman leaders, they would nominate, okay? By nominate, that's called nomination because only the Sanhedrin, this council of Jewish leaders, only they could affirm who got to be the high priest. Um, but it turns out that apparently when the Romans nominated somebody, that's who the Sanhedrin ended up affirming. Big surprise, right? The way you got nominated by Rome was by being a good friend of Rome, by giving a lot of money to Rome and the right proper officials. I've said before, as I was taught years ago, that by this time the priesthood had become pretty much the mafia. 
And so they would, they would give money, they would try to find political favor, and the Romans would give them instructions. It's one of the great dangers, by the way, of, of looking, of the church, of religious organizations at all, looking to the government to give us authority, rather than it coming from God and the people, is because at some point, that's one of the rules of government. If they give you something, they take it back. And here's where we are under the leadership of Rome. This is where they are. Um, they see this, they know what's going on, they understand it, but the problem is the presiding member of the Sanhedrin is now become such a pragmatist, he now is such, such a Roman rather than a follower of Yahweh. He's so afraid of his own power being taken from him. It turns out his father was probably the high priest before him. So they gather, they're afraid, so we get to verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. In other words, you're not, you're not thinking this through. You're not understanding that it's better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now this is just straight up mercenary. And it sounds as evil as it is. It'd be better for everyone if one man died for the people and not the whole nation perish. Here's the difference. Caiaphas isn't talking about himself. And you knew that. Caiaphas isn't interested in sacrificing his own life for the people. Notice he's there to protect his power. Sacrificing somebody else's life? Sure, why not? We'll sacrifice somebody else's life. There's nothing neat about this. There's nothing kind about this except what John then reveals to us which boggles my mind. Verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations. Notice, Caiaphas had not earned this. He was not the kind of religious holy man who was worthy of, of getting to utter a prophecy. This is Balaam the second, or worse, Balaam's donkey. This, this man has no position and nothing about him except the position that he has and the title that he has as the high priest that God decides to speak a miracle through him, to speak a prophecy through him. See, what's wild is what he says is technically true. It's better that one man should die for the people than for everyone to die. That's exactly right. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it either it's all of us or it's him? And Caiaphas gets to pronounce that prophecy completely unwittingly. God uses him to proclaim this without any interest. There's no input from, from Caiaphas on this. God just speaks it through him. Then John makes it clear. Listen, 52. And not just for this nation, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Remember what Jesus said? Okay, so for us it's been months. But John chapter 10 is not that far back in the timeline. In John 10, Jesus said, I have sheep from all the different flocks. I have sheep all over the place, and I'm going to bring them all together for one flock. And Caiaphas just announced that prophecy, that this is exactly what's going to happen, is exactly this right here. I, I, I think it's staggering that God would use someone like Caiaphas. Why bother? But God is God, and he understands he wants to get his message out everywhere that he can and stuff like this. Ironically, a sign by a man who doesn't think signs are to be followed a man who has not earned any of it. This prophecy that Jesus would gather his people. 54, because they're out to get him now. So from that day, sorry, 53. From that day, they made plans to put him to death. Now, until then, they'd just been reactive. Now, they're becoming strategic. It's only a matter of time. 
They're hunting for him now. They're going to try to get him. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim, where he stayed there with the disciples. Just, just for geography reasons, no one knows exactly where this city was. Um, there's different opinions on it, probably somewhere to the northeast of Jerusalem, which means out in the desert of Judea. Verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So we fast forwarded from Hanukkah to Passover. Was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus. And saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Think he'll come to the feast at all? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Again, let's, let's clarify this and what John is telling us. Somewhere between Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the, um, the feast that is to remind us of the re-sanctification of the temple. The restoration of the Jewish life. The restoration of the relationship between the people and their God in the temple. That's Hanukkah. Passover is the reminder that God chose his people and he passed over them. He did not slaughter them. But instead he passed over them in his mercy and having chosen them. That he delivered them from their slavers and turned them into their own people. Into a race, a massive race of people. Those are the two things that were between. And in between that, Jesus is raising someone from the dead. And the chief priest is plotting murder of his own Messiah. That's what's going on. How much worse can you miss it? So it struck me about this. The main message outside of the obvious message that we come running out of our grave is this. is how easy it is to miss it. And to miss it big. The leaders are plotting murder to protect their position. They're trying to protect a position that God himself created. It's not their power. It's not their position. They have no need to try to fight for it, to protect it. It's God's position for them, not their own. Stop fighting for it. Instead, look to him. We're barely halfway through the Gospel of John, and the next chapter begins with Passover, which is going to be the Passover in which Jesus dies. Many people, according to this, are already heading to Jerusalem for the Passover to prepare themselves. Like the Feast of Booth, Jesus is already the talk of the town. Is he going to show up? The people want to see him. They want to see what he's going to do, but the leader is going to arrest him, and they've put out the word. They're ready to pay. All they see is the people see a spectacle. The religious leaders see a threat. The one thing they want to see is the works of Christ. But to be able to, it's one thing to see them. It's another thing to correctly interpret them and correctly respond to them. Okay, so here's, here's what jumped out at me as we wrap this up. Apparently, Caiaphas' real name is Joseph. According to the history books, Caiaphas is the name given to him by the people who followed him. Caiaphas is the same root as Cephas, Peter, Petros, rock, stone. Caiaphas is the name that the people gave Joseph, the high priest. No one knows exactly why, but unlike Cephas, the name Jesus gives to Peter, meaning on this stone, on this rock, this becomes the foundation and everything is built on the proclamation that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I, get, I name you Cephas, the rock, because everything else is built on that proclamation. But very likely Caiaphas' name was rock because of the hardness of his heart. 
Did Caiaphas' nickname, Caiaphas' nickname was, was, hard, was hardened, hard, was, was the rock in that his heart was so hard, that he was so pragmatic, that he was so, so stony, that he missed, he missed the people around him. He was concerned with his own power. Listen, when you're hard-hearted, when we are hard-hearted, we impose that heart onto the world around us. We blame others rather than see what's going on inside of us. We don't see the real issues for what they are. This struck me as the opportunity for us to miss the sign in our midst, whatever those signs are. We don't want to miss it. I've said before that every single marriage I've seen end has involved the hardness of at least one person's heart. It's what, it's what Jesus tells us, that that's why divorce exists is because of the hardness of our hearts. We're not willing to hope or believe or listen or grow or change. We're too sunk in. We're dug into our own perspective. We don't believe in resurrected marriages. We don't believe in restored friendships and families. We don't believe in redeemed pasts. We don't believe in people being reconciled to their own brokenness. We don't believe in the affirmation of faith because our hearts are hard and we're missing the miracles and signs right in front of us. They miss it because they can only see their own significance. We fail to be persuaded. We fail to believe and we miss the miracle. We miss this statement. Here's the gospel. There is nothing and no one so dead that Christ cannot call them from the grave. That's the truth. We believe we were given the key to this passage when Jesus spoke to Martha. The key for interpreting this passage correctly is this. Believe and you will see the glory of God that you have seen. This is not some fake belief. This is not some pie in the sky like, uh, you know, make it, fake it till you make it. Believing what you know ain't so. This is be persuaded by the truth of this. Accept this as the truth and you will see the glory of God. She does and she sees it. Caiaphas doesn't and he missed it even though that's the only reason he exists is to catch this and he missed it. God protect us from that. We get distracted by the tiniest little thing and it pulls us off the gospel. We get distracted and it pulls us off the good news of what God can do and what he's doing. Let's avoid that. I don't want us to be distracted by this. In a second, we're going to have a really short business meeting so we can vote. We do this every year. We've got like three of them a year for different things. They're always very quick. This will be quick. Um, but to vote on leadership board members, which is a big deal for the church. People are going to making decisions for the church. We don't want to be distracted by this. I hope that even as we go through that, that your heart is still listening to what God is talking to you about through this. We don't often talk about some of this stuff, but for example, we're at a good time to remember to remember, to focus on remembering to focus. This is a good season for that. We're just a few days out from Ash Wednesday, which is the represent, rec, recognition of 46 days until Easter. 40 days plus six Sundays. Wednesday, we're going to be having a time of worship, a celebration of worship with, with the students and some of the children and all of us um, at 6.30 to come and worship together. It'll be a great time for you to be considering is there something that you need to let go out of your life for a season so that you can focus on what we're looking at and on what is coming and on, on, the, on the work of Jesus Christ in our lives? Um, I don't know what that is for you, but I think it's something you need to seriously consider. We all do. Um, and to come and worship, which is what really focuses us in. Learning is great. Um, learning that Worshiping this way by learning is awesome. Worshiping by telling God um, about him and proclaiming him is, is every bit as powerful or more. So as John comes up, um, we're going to pray. If you've, and we're going to have a time of invitation. If you've 
talk to our welcome home team, talk to Lance, that kind of stuff, and you're ready to join, when, minute, when we have the invitation, that, that would be the time for you to come forward. Um, if you have something else that you need to come and leave at the altar, whether it's through prayer or literally, um, then feel free to do that. There's a, there's a church, Ellie was, Ellie's over there, that Ellie was telling us about that, that she said that they, the youth leave their phones or something, um, so because otherwise they send, they send the whole service, maybe pretending to look in their Bible, but they're actually doing something else, and, and I said like, yeah, because that, that's the only the youth do that. <laughs> Wrong. Um, and so that maybe during meet and greet in the future, in order for you to help with that, that during meet and greet, you come leave your phone up here on one of these sides and then pick it up after church, or leave it as a donation if you'd rather, but, or leave it up here at the church. Um, during church, it allow you to focus in on God's word um, and what he's teaching. I don't know what that is. I just know that's one of the distractors for us. So stand with me, please. Let's pray together and close out this time and the second well, the business meeting. Um, I pray that the Lord is speaking to your heart that we don't miss whatever it is he has for us. Father, you're a good God who loves to give good gifts, and just as your son said, we're so grateful that you hear us. And even though we don't have the relationship with you as human beings that your son did as he lived life as a human, even though we don't have the the sinlessness, um, and we have more, way more barriers between us and you, Lord, and we don't know how to ask for things, you forgive us and you are patient with us, and Lord, you just encourage us to ask. And so we come to you with the prayer request that we have, asking a father who loves to give good gifts to give us what he knows we actually need and what actually would be good for us. And Lord, we know that there's nothing outside of your power, even though you express it only in specific ways according to your will. God, we pray for one another. We pray for this church in South Africa, whatever they're going through. And Lord, we pray for the other churches around us and for, and for what's going on in our families. There's plenty of challenges, Father. Lord, I pray you would resurrect marriages and restore friendships. Lord, that as only you can, that you would all call us out of the grave. Help us to be persuaded, Lord, that what we need to do is come running. I pray this in your son's magnificent name. Amen. John.